So let me read the text. 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Hear these words from the word. Elisha died and was buried. Now Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders. So they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. I want to talk about grace beyond the grave. Grace beyond the grave. Nothing could stop the ministry of Elisha. Not even death. Elisha was the successor of Elijah, the great prophet of God, the prophet from Tishbet. Elijah performed tremendous miracles and God used him in a great way, but his ministry was much shorter than the ministry of Elisha's that would extend 50 to 60 years. God gave Elijah a advance notice and said to him, you're getting ready to go home. I want you to anoint the king of the northern kingdom, the king of Syria, and then I want you to get your replacement ready because you're getting ready to make the transition from the terrestrial on earth to the celestial in heaven. I'm just of the opinion and conviction that if you and I really live close enough to the Lord, he will give us advance notices. He'll give us bulletins. We will have a hunch that something is getting ready to happen and we need to prepare ourselves spiritually so that we can combat spiritual warfare or whatever it may be. And it's only when that takes place that we'll understand why God woke us up at 2 o'clock and would not let us go back to sleep. And God said to Elijah, anoint Elisha. He saw Elisha plowing with oxen and put his mantle on Elisha. And Elisha understood that and took and went home and burned up his oxen equipment and cut up and boiled the oxen as if to say, I am now out of farming and I am completely into ministry. I'm not going to do ministry part-time. I'm done with that business. I don't want to even be tempted to go back, so I'm going to burn up the oxen equipment and boil the meat and have a celebration go away service for me. Elijah would go home. But just before he went home, Elisha said, I have one request since you've asked me. Is there anything that you'd like to have? And Elisha did not ask for his books, didn't ask for his robes, didn't ask for his pension, didn't ask for anything that's material. All I want is a double portion of the spirit that you have. You see, the double portion was always important. The firstborn son of every family had a double portion of the estate of his father. That's why it was so important for Jacob to get Esau's double portion so that he could have more than his brother and therefore, Jacob tricked him out of it and got the double portion, even though he was a second son born as the younger twin of Esau. Elisha saying, I want to be your heir, Elijah. I want to have not just what you have. I want to have twice as much as you have. And Elijah was impressed with that and said to Elisha, as we stand at this river, I'm getting ready to be taken up by a chariot of fire. It's, it's a chartered chariot. We, we're really 
think we are something when we can get in a chartered limousine. This is a chartered chariot pulled by horses of fire with rings of fire that would take Elijah beyond the ionosphere, the stratosphere, and all the way to the third heaven. And Elijah said to Elisha, look, you've asked for a difficult thing, not an impossible thing, but a difficult thing. And if you will see me when I am taken out of your sight, you will get your double portion, which really means this. If you can keep looking and not be derailed and not be distracted and not be defeated, if you can keep your concentration on me, then when you see me leave, you'll get exactly what you've asked for. Our call is for an undivided attention when it comes to the Lord. If we really want what we say we want. Here's the big question. Do I really want what I'm saying that I want? How much do I really want the double portion? How much do I really want power? How much do I really want effectiveness and victorious living in my life? How much? How much do you want it? Some of us don't want it enough. You can't have it if two, two hours on Sunday is all you need. You can't have it. You can't have it if the Bible is just a way of reading the text when you get in an emergency instead of it being a, a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. You can't have it. You've got to have, want this more than you really want life. And we become so easily distracted. Young people, how, how much do you really want success? And when I talk about success, I'm not talking about a lot of bling bling and a lot of money and a lot of this and that. That's not success. There's a bond building fool in Luke 12, verses 12 to 21, who built up his bonds and had fruits and had servants and had money, and God called him a fool. And he left everything he had for someone else. How bad do you really want to reach your aspirations in life as God leads you? You've got a lot of opportunity. But the struggle is, oftentimes you have little or no desire. My mother finished the ninth grade. My daddy finished the first grade. They had to work. And daddy went to school once a month during the year, finished the first grades. They had no opportunity, but they had great desire. Now you've got a lot of opportunity. But you've got to let your opportunity match your desire and say, I can and I will accomplish what God has laid out for me. Forget about what side of the tracks you've been born on. It doesn't make any difference. God is on both sides of the track. You've got a brain. Forget about your complexion. That doesn't mean anything. Your character means everything. Well, I messed up. You're looking at everybody here who's messed up. And all of us are X something, whatever it is, we're X something. That's why John Newton said in Amazing Grace, he says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Listen to it. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I'm so glad that we as Christians can say we once were, but now we are. And that's what God is able to make you. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. I know it's easy for you and for all of us to talk about what we would have done or what we would do. Too many of us are lost in the woods, W-O-U-L-D-S, and I'm quitting that word. I would be a better man if I had a better wife. I would be a better wife if I had a better husband. I'd be a better person if I had a man. I'd be a better person if I had a woman. 
I'd be a better Christian if I had a better pastor. I'd be a better worker if I had a better supervisor. Wood, get rid of the woods and say I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Get out of the woods and let God let you mount up with wings as eagles and run and not be weary and walk and not faint. Don't tell me that a person like Fantasia, a teenage mother who was getting ready to be closed out, knocking on the door, trying to get into American Idols just to audition. And the janitor heard her voice when the auditions were closed. And she got in and won the thing. Don't you know if you keep on knocking, if you keep on asking, if you keep on seeking, if you keep on trusting, God will open the door. How bad do you want it? Do you want it bad enough to stay up half the night doing your work? Do you want it bad enough even though you dropped out of school to get back in school and finish your degree? Do you want it that bad? And Elijah said to Elisha, you've asked a difficult thing, but if you will not be distracted and you watch me go into the unseen arena of space, you can have exactly what you've asked for. Young people oftentimes are judged based upon their immediate moment. We see them as they are rather than as they will be. The Lord said to uh, Peter in John 1, 41 to 43, your name is Simon, fluttering bird, but it will be Cephas, which in Aramaic is the same as Petra in Greek. It means rock. Right now, you're like a fluttering bird. No stability at all, but you shall be a rock. You're going to deny me three times like a fluttering bird, but on Pentecost, you're going to stand up and represent me before thousands of people, and from your one sermon, 3,000 folk are going to be saved. Let us stop looking at young people as they are. Yes, God calls us to be fishers of people, but what we try to do is clean the fish before we catch them. Catch the young people. So what, their dresses are too high and uh, their dresses are too, uh, too low and the young man's pants are too low? That's all right. Catch them first. Bring them in. Watch God pull up and pull down. Watch God change. In fact, I'm looking around right now. You didn't become who you are overnight. God has been pulling down and pulling up and still is not finished. Because sanctification means that he is conforming us to the image of his dear son. You've asked a difficult thing, Elisha, but if you will be focused on me and see me as I am taken from the earth, then you will have exactly what you've asked for. Elisha's ministry paralleled and mirrored the ministry of Elijah. Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17 verses 1 to 16 encounters a widow of Zarephath during a three and a half year famine yes. in which flock died, flowers died, and everything was dying. And God sent Elijah to Zarephath, which is northwest Palestine, outside of uh, Israel as we know it proper. And there's a widow there. We don't know her name. She's just the widow of Zarephath. And she's in desperate straits. Uh, she has just enough meal and just enough oil to make a whole cake for her and her son, and then they're going to die. She's out searching for sticks so she can rub them together to create a fire. And she sees Elijah, who has enough holy audacity to say to her, make me a little cake first. And I know that she didn't know Matthew 16, because it hadn't been read yet, but it does say that she did exactly what it says. She anticipated his writing. Seek ye 
first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. She made him a whole cake first, and because of her obedience, God put a cornfield in her barrel and an oil well in her cruise so that every time she went back to dip out a pint of oil, another pipe was put in. And every time she went back to dip out a quart of meal, another quart was put in because God kept replenishing what she was emptying. But the same thing happened with Elisha. In 2 Kings chapter number 4, here is Elisha, and there's a Shunammite woman. She is so impoverished that her debtors are getting ready to put her sons into slavery. And she was going to have to sell them in order to pay for her debts. Elisha says, no, you don't need to do that. Just gather as many pans as you have from as many neighbors as you have, and every pan that you have, God's going to fill it up with oil. And if you had a million pans, God would have filled them up. When she stopped asking for pans, the oil stopped. And she took and traded in the oil for some cash and bought herself out of debt and was able to keep her sons. Same parallel between Elijah and Elisha. Same thing happened with Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 to 24. Here is Elijah who is called by this widow of Zarephath her son that he promised would come has died. Elisha comes, and the Bible says that he takes and lies down on the son three times. And the Bible says that God gave the boy his life again. But the same thing happened with Elisha. In 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 17 to 37, he was a boy that's born of the Shunammite woman. And this particular boy, while out in the field, has a heat stroke, a sunstroke, is brought home, dies, is laid on his bed, and the woman sends for Elisha. Not for the medical doctor, not for the psychiatrist, not for the counselor, but for the man of God. And when Elisha gets there, the Bible says that he put his mouth on the boy's mouth, which is the first instance of mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation that we have in the Bible. And the Bible says that his body started getting warm, he sneezed seven times and woke up and lived. Same parallel. But there is one instance in which Elijah could not match Elisha because Elisha asked for a double portion. One day after Elijah was taken back to heaven, the Bible says in 2 Kings chapter 13 that Elisha got sick. King Jehoash, who was the king of the northern kingdom, came to visit him and cries out the same way that Elisha had cried out before Elijah was going back home. My father, chariots and horsemen of Israel. And the Bible says in verse 20 that Elisha died. They buried Elisha in a cemetery. I'm sure it was a cemetery, a man of his great stature. And one day when the funeral procession was making its way to the cemetery, they saw a band of Moabites getting ready to raid the northern kingdom of Israel. They didn't want to have anything to do with these raiders. They knew they stood no chance. This is a funeral procession. And therefore, they abandoned the funeral procession and threw their friend and relative's body in a ground depression, in a grave, not knowing whose grave it was. And the Bible says they threw that body in Elisha's grave. And when that man's dead body touched Elisha's dead bones, the man got up again. In other words, Elisha outdid Elijah. All of Elijah's miracles took place during life. But here is a man who's dead, and there's still power in his bones that God used this dead man's bones to bring life to a dead man that's thrown into his own grave. Oh, brothers and sisters, God wants to speak to us today about what we ought to learn from this encounter. Because everything that Elijah did, Elijah did during his lifetime, but God chose to use Elisha after his death. I think that we ought to learn, number one, that salvation comes outside of us. It's what we call alien salvation. Now, what does that mean? It's alien righteousness. Righteousness that's not our own. 
that comes from outside of us, which means we can't save ourselves. This man was dead. They were burying him in a tomb. Nothing could help him in terms of what he was able to manufacture. If there was going to be any raising, it had to come outside of him. May I remind us, all of us who are saved are saved because of what happened outside of us. God didn't look at you and say, you know, you're valuable, and I think I'm going to save you and use you. No, when he saved and used you, that's what made you valuable. You were not valuable because he was chose to save you. You were valuable because he saved you. I don't know why we think for some reason that there's some intrinsic value in us that attracts us to God. You know what Isaiah 64 and 6 says? You're righteous, even at your best. And in this mixed congregation, I can't even tell you what, what, what he meant when he says is as filthy rags, something as despicable, something as repulsive as that filthy rag is. He says, at your best, that's what you ought to mean. Do you not hear Paul saying in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and verse 4, he says, there were times in which you were dead in trespasses and sin. Now, what can a dead person do? Nothing. You can't save yourself. Well, I'm, I'm an intelligent man. You are dead intelligent man. I'm a Mercedes driving man. You are dead Mercedes driving man. You are dead in trespasses and sin. But Christ has made you alive in him. And then Paul says in that 12th and 13th verse of Ephesians 2, he says, at one time you were strangers from the commonwealth of Israel, foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without God and without hope in the world. Listen to this contrast. But now, those of you who are far off are made to be drawn nigh by the blood of the Lamb. You and I are saved because of what Christ has done. And if you're not saved today, it's not because he's moved. It's because you won't let him in. And if you just see yourself as hopeless, and you are, as spiritually dead without him as you are, and say to him, I need thee. I'm lost. I'm unsaved. I'm hellbound. He will come in, and I don't care what you've done. He'll save you. My sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul, you don't have to have any shame, just guilt. For me, there's a distinction between shame and guilt. Shame is feeling bad about who you are. Guilt is feeling bad about what you've done. And if you are a really healthy Christian with a healthy conscience, you will feel bad about what you've done and be guilty. But once God has saved you, you don't have to have shame about who you are because you're no longer who you used to be. Do you know who you are? I said, do you know who you are? You've been adopted by God. Your name is written down in the book of heaven. God has decided that he would bankrupt heaven in order to save you and send his only son. You're somebody. And so you have alien righteousness. This man was dead. And when his dead body touched Elisha's dead bones, something happened outside of him, and he rose up and rejoined, I think, the pallbearers who were carrying him to the grave in order to give God some glory. That's the first thing. Second thing, God buries his workers, but never his work. God buries his workers, but never his work. Elisha is dead, but his work carries on, even after his death. No wonder John says in John 14 and 13, blessed are the dead 
who die in the Lord. From henceforth saith the Spirit, they shall rest from their labors and their works do follow them. When you die and you live for Christ, he can still glorify himself with your life's work even when you're dead. Let the works that I've done speak for me. Now, if you want your works to speak for you after death, you've got to live to that point. Elisha died in God because he lived in God. And I'm glad, Pastor Venice, that God has chosen to use our lives and our ministries for his glory even when we die. We are writing books, and the books represent the lives of people. We are pouring into That's why you've got to pour into people. That's why you've got to put your life in people. You've got to invest in people. Anybody who thinks of himself or herself all the time makes a small package. Everything about me, selfish, got the I-itis and the me-itis. And never think about anybody else. You've got to pour into people so much so that you will never die. Husbands have poured into wives. Parents have poured into children. Don't you have the kind of parents who poured into you who are still speaking to you now even though they're somewhere around the throne? Uh, God buries his workers, but he doesn't bury his work. And it's foolish for us to walk around here like we are absolutely necessary. <laughs> Indispensable. Unexpendable. Oh, they can't do without me. I tell people, don't think that you're the only pebble on the beach, the only fish in the sea, and the only rooster in the barnyard. Because... When you die, somebody else is going to drive that car you just paid off. When you die, somebody else is going to live in that house that you hold the title to. And when you die, somebody else is going to put their arms around that woman that you love. You better do like Mama Mamie Jackson used to do when she'd come sashaying down the aisle. I'm glad to be in the service. Just one more time. He didn't have to let me live. And when you come into church, there's no sense of spectating, waiting for something to happen. You need to be a participator because something has happened. In fact, it ought to happen before you get here. I was over Mother Boy's house yesterday, and something happened. She got the praying, and the foundation shook, and it was not even Sunday morning. You know why? Because that shows she's been praising God and shouting and praying all week long. That's why we're so cold in church. Ice cold religion. That's why we can't be touched unless our favorite leader leads us on. When you think of the goodness of Jesus and all he's done for you, your soul ought to cry out. Hallelujah. Thank God for saving me. I, I think we ought to see the Christological connection in this text. What I mean by that is the Christ-centered emphasis in this text because the pallbearers took and threw the body in the grave. Not just any grave, Elisha's grave. And Elisha's name means Jehovah is my salvation. I want to contend that had they thrown that dead man's body in somebody else's grave, the man would have stayed dead. It had to be thrown in the man whose name is God is my salvation. And when they threw that body in Elisha, who prefigures Christ, when that dead man's body touched Elisha's dead bones, the man got up. 
I want to say when a dead sinner comes in contact with a crucified Christ, dead people get up and live again. I, I understand, I understand. We live in a church society where nobody wants to offend anybody with their preaching. So you can have the man who preaches in the largest church in America who says on the opening night of that beautiful, beautiful place where they meet, I will not preach on sin. I will not preach on anything that's offensive. That's what he said. You know, I like that only because he's kept his words and he hasn't. But I'm going to tell you, if you preach the gospel, you've got to be more than a motivational speaker. Somebody is going to be driven. Somebody is going to be drawn. In fact, if you really preach the gospel, you're the bloodiest person in the church. Something, sometimes I don't want to preach this text because it's cut me up and I'm bleeding. Well, if I'm going to bleed all week because the text has cut me up, you're not going to be spared on Sunday morning. All of us going to bleed. We want to be pluralistic, which means we want to offer to people all kinds of options and alternatives yes, to God. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And so for some of us, our pastor is Pastor Ofer Renfrey uh -huh. and other people like that. Pastor Phil and other folk like that. Uh, who will not say there's only one way to God? No, there are many ways because we don't want to offend anyone. But to hear Jesus say in John 14 and 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. They tried to prohibit Peter and John for preaching in Jesus' name. They didn't mind them preaching, but don't bring up Jesus. And Peter spoke in behalf, on behalf of John in Acts, in Acts 4 and 12 and said, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. And then Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So after 50 years, I decided that I need to preach. And what am I going to preach? I just think I'm going to keep on preaching Jesus because that's the only power that comes. He's the only one that raises from the dead. And had that dead man's body been thrown to someone else's grave, that man would have remained dead. But I'm so glad when you and I who are dead in trespasses and sin come in contact with a crucified Jesus, he gives us brand new life. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. I think something else that the text wants us to understand is the dynamism of the Holy Spirit activated. You say, well, Robert, I don't see any trace, any sign, any hint that the Holy Spirit is in this text. Explicitly, you're right. Implicitly, you're wrong. Because God cannot be trichotomized. In other words, you can't have God, Father, a separate God, Son, and a separate God, the Holy Spirit, so that you end up with being a, a person who holds three gods. No, there is unity in Trinity. I can't explain it. It's mystery. It's not one God plus, one God plus, one God plus. That equals three. It's one God as Father times, one God as Father Son times, one God as spirit times, because one times one times one still equals one. And I can't understand it, but he's three and one. Resurrection doesn't take place without the spirits. In fact, Adam would have stayed dead. He had everything that he needed. He had a complete body with everything that he needed. He was a handsome dead man. But when God blew into his nostrils, the word in Hebrew is ruach, which means spirit, breath. Adam got up 
and lived in those valley of dry bones. Ezekiel had preached until there was harmony, rattling of the bones in the valley. Wonderful. But you can have harmony and noise in the church and still be dead. And then there was unity. Bone came to its bone. And yet the body was still dead. And you can have unity in the church where there's great organization and still be dead. And then there was beauty because the bones were covered with sinews and flesh and muscles and tendons but were still dead. And you can have beauty in the church and still be dead. And God said to, Eli to, to uh, Ezekiel, prophesy to the Ruach, the wind. And when the wind came from the north, south, east, and west and blew into those nostrils of those corpses, they got up with a brand new life because it takes the spirit to raise you from the dead. That's really what took place in the resurrection of Jesus. I know that he says in Hebrews 20, or John 11, 24, 25, and 26, I'm the resurrection. I'm not a doctrine, I'm a person. If a person lives and believes in me, that person will never die. But Jesus died one Friday. And Romans 8 and 11 says, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead shall also raise your mortal bodies. And the Holy Spirit was active there in terms of that man being raised. And most of us, if not all of us, before Jesus comes again, we will die. But do you understand what death is? Death is not a dead end. Death is a thoroughfare. And when Jesus died on the cross and they buried him in Joseph of Arimathea's brand new tomb, he left the grave clothes, folded them up, because he knew that Graham and Smith and Byrne and Ingram would need grave clothes. But we just need them temporarily because we got some other garments. A long white robe that's waiting for me in the New Jerusalem. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. He not only raises you up at death, he raises you up in life and emboldens you and energizes you. And when you feel discouraged and you think your hope is in vain, then the Holy Spirit revives your soul again. There is a bomb in Gilead that can make the wounded whole. There is a bomb in Gilead that can heal the sin-sick soul. And this salvation comes outside of us because God calls all of us like a dead Lazarus, calls us by name specifically. And we come forth out of the grave, skipping across the beaches of the Bethany Cemetery like a schoolboy on a co college campus. But he has to call our name specifically. Lazarus, come forth. Because had he said, come forth, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have gotten up. Sarah and Deborah and Ruth would have gotten up. But he says, not your time yet. I just want one. Lazarus, come forth. I think we ought to learn something else. You have the inextricable relationship between death and life in this passage. I know it looks like it's all death, but when this dead man's body comes in contact with Elisha's dead bones, the dead man lives because life and death are inextricably related, even in life. We want laughter as Christians. We don't want lamentation. We want sigh singing, but we don't want sighing. You cannot have singing without sighing. Stony the road we trod, bitter the chastening rod, felt in the day when hope unborn had died, yet with a steady beat, have not our weary feet come to the place for which our fathers sighed. Whenever I'm tempted, whenever storms arise, when songs give way to sighing, and sighing is this moaning, this groaning, and you want singing but no sighs. You want life but no death. You can't have it. That's exactly what Jacob had to go through. 
we know his name has been changed to Israel, which means God fights. Jacob's name means wrestler, supplanter, trickster, deceiver. And the Lord allowed Jacob to participate in his greatest strength, wrestling. So God sent him a wrestler. And he wrestled with the divine presence and said, you don't know me. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And he got the blessing, but he also got the burden. Because though his name is changed to Israel, God fights. God dislocates his hip and he has the limp. And everybody can know that he has been with God by the way he walks. Nobody has to wonder what happened. They know that he's not walking the same any longer. God, if you really want the blessing, will rearrange things in your life. God will break some things, disconnect something. You cannot come to God and walk away the same way. You say, I want more power. You are asking for breakage. You're asking for disconnection. You're asking for pain. Joseph says in Genesis 50, 20, Brothers, I know that you have defrauded me and tricked me and betrayed me. What you meant unto me for evil, God meant it unto me for good to save much people alive. So my brothers hurt me. That's why we can't understand this. Uh, that people who are so close to us could hurt us so deeply. But if you're a child of God, get used to strife from the outside and from the inside of your church and even your own family. Children will break your heart. I'll tell anybody, don't build your life around your kids. You better use some of that money. Go on a cruise. You haven't had a, a new dress in 15 years because you're already buy, always buying Johnny and Larry something. You better enjoy life now because some of them are waiting for you to die to get it all anyway. Aeschylus, Aeschylus, the 6th century B.C., father of Greek tragedy and a Greek playwright says, in our sleep, pain which cannot be forgotten falls drop by drop upon the heart until in his own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. We love amazing grace but we don't like awful grace. We love mercies, but we don't like severe mercies. And we love getting out of trouble, but we don't want to see what we get out of trouble. It's not just getting out of trouble. What do you get out of it? What do you learn? And we want Psalm 23, verse 5. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with all my cup runs over. We like that. But you can't get to Psalm 23, verse 5 until you've gone through Psalm 23, verse 4. Yea, though I walk, not around, not over, not under, but through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because he's with me. His rod and his staff, they come from In fact, you can't even appreciate the banquet table that he prepares before you until you've been through the valley. These raisings are all resuscitations, not resurrections. When Elijah raised the widow Zarephath's son from death, it was not a resurrection, it was a resuscitation. It was a resuscitation because that boy had to die again. When Elisha raised that Shudamite son, from the grave. It was not a resurrection. It was a resuscitation. He had to die again. In fact, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave, it was not a resurrection. 
it was a resuscitation because he had to die again. When Peter raised Dorcas from the grave, it was not a resurrection, it was a resuscitation. When Jesus raised Eutychus after he went to sleep in church and died, that's why it's dangerous to go to sleep in church. You just don't know what's going to happen. God used Paul to raise Eutychus from the grave. It was not a resurrection, it was a resuscitation because Jesus has to be the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the only one who died and will never die again. Don't you hear him saying to John in John 1, 18, 19, he says, I am the, the one who was dead and I'm alive and I'm alive forevermore and I've got the keys of death, hell, and the grave. One of these days, we will be resurrected never to die again for we're living in a land where death will die once and for all. Well, brothers and sisters, there are times, and I don't know, I think that this was a moment in which these individuals who witnessed this dead man living, or particularly this dead man who was close to them dying, I think that this was a moment frozen in time, uh, that before this resuscitation, that they struggled with, how am I going to make it? After the loss of my brother, my husband, my cousin, my uncle, my friend. Because there are some moments that are frozen in time. On the 16th of February, February 1963, September the 15th, 1963, in Birmingham, Alabama, at the 16th Street Baptist Church, a bomb went off and four young black girls were killed. Down in the basement, there's a clock that's part of the museum that has never been restarted. The time, 1022. Now, that's been many years ago, but they've never restarted that clock because it's a moment that's frozen in time. On October the 30th, 2010, at 11.56 p.m., our son, Antonio Marie Smith, was pronounced dead. It's a moment that's frozen in time. I know when it's coming without looking at the calendar. I, I feel that. There are just some moments that are frozen in time. But it doesn't mean that though they are frozen, you are frozen. I get concerned about people who died when somebody else died. Life is over. No. You've got to get to the place where it doesn't make any difference. You've got to come to understand this, that God still lives. Folk keep asking me all the time, uh, Dr. Smith, Robert Smith, Brother Smith, have you come to closure with uh, the death of your son? I say to them, uh, closure is for bank accounts. Closure is not for love accounts. When you love somebody, God has to keep on every day of your life massaging your heart, giving you therapy, inspiring you, saying to you, I feel like going on. Some of us are still stuck. Some tragedy has happened, and our life died right at the graveyard when we put that body there or when some other crisis took place. Life dies. But I want to tell you that God is able to move you beyond that point. It concerns me, and this is digression, but I just need to say this. It concerns me that some of us will never get beyond Minnesota Baton Rouge and Dallas of last week. And I hate to say this, but it's going to get worse. Why? Because the Lord predicted it. Our hearts have grown cold. Got to get to the place where you come to understand, number one, that all lives matter. All lives. God is the only one who gives it. And God is the only one who ought to take it. And therefore, white people, policemen particularly, who kill blacks, they were lynching us before, but there were no video cameras. There are no cell phones. We discover it now because there is visualization. But what ought to concern us is there also black-on-black crimes. White people don't take us serious when we say black lives matter 
and we're raping our mothers, killing each other for $3, killing each other because you disrespected me. Have no concern about life. All lives matter. And when it comes to us at church, we might not ever as Christians take a gun, but we're killing each other every day. We love for one another to fall because it makes us look better. We love for, for one of us to get stuck because it makes us look better. But anybody that dies, part of you dies. Whatever happened to us weeping? When one of our young person went astray? What happened to young people, to, to us, when some of our young people got a confusion in terms of their sexual orientation? We get on cell phones and text. What happened about going down on our knees? What happened to young people when they got incarcerated? Where are the tears? Why aren't we crying? Why aren't our hearts broken? Why aren't we disturbed? When God weeps. When we go to the cemetery, whether it's figurative or literal, literary, we ought to weep. We ought to weep because our heart is broken, because that's somebody's child, that's somebody's mother. Mm. Let me go on and finish. John Claypool had a daughter many years ago who was diagnosed with leukemia and for the next one year, eight months, and ten days, her body was being dismantled. She was a little girl. She died, and his perspective on death was this. He says, life is a gift. We don't earn it, but we must cherish it. I wish we could live that way. Life is a gift. And you can sit here and be as healthy and as cute and handsome as you want to be, and we'll be having your funeral on Friday. Yours or mine. Life is a gift. You're not here because you're so agile and you're so careful and because you can lift up 500 pounds and because you can look in a mirror and know you're so fine that you wink at the mirror as you walk by. It's not why you're here. God has gifted you, and therefore we ought to cherish each other and cherish life. Isn't it amazing what God did with a dead man's bones? Brought life? If God can use a dead man's bones, how much more can he use living people? Helen Keller, Helen Keller was not able to see. And yet Helen Keller, when asked, what is the worst thing that you can think of beyond being blind? And she said, the worst thing beyond being blind is being able to see but not having any vision. No vision beyond the day, no plan, no destination. Well, I'm just living from day to day. You got to stop that. God has a destiny for you. God wants to elevate you. God wants to bring you to a new season. Max Lucado, who writes a book, When God Came Near, takes Mark 7, 31 to 35, that text where Jesus comes to a certain area and they bring a man to him who's a deaf mute. He can't talk and can hardly hear. They bring him to him, and Jesus takes and spits on his own fingers, puts his fingers in the man's ears, and then puts the man's, puts his fingers on the man's tongue. Now, had the man been black, then uh, the man would never have uh, tolerated that. You're not going to spit on yourself and put it on me. That's, don't spit, spit on me. Now, you, you don't want what the Lord wants. And the Bible says before he said, Aphatha, which means be open, he looked up and he sighed. And Lakato meant by that when he sighed, God never meant it for it to be this way. For anybody to be a deaf mute. Don't you understand when you go home to heaven, you're not going home with cancer. You're not going home with rheumatism and arthritis. 
You're not going home being bald-headed. You're not going home being a crippled. You're not going home with any disease. You're going to have a brand new body. I'm almost done. We have a student at Beeson of Indian School. He finished his degree years ago. He speaks very articulately, but he can't hear. And he gave a sermon in chapel. Brilliant, biblically expository sermon. Wonderful, but he couldn't hear a thing. But he closed the sermon by saying, you know, when I get home, see, all of y'all have heard the voices of your mother and your fathers and your friends, but the very first voice I'm going to hear will be the voice of my Savior. He speaks, and the sound of his voice is so sweet that the birds hush their singing. It was Fanny Crosby who wrote over 2,000 hymns who could not see, was blind, and yet she could write blessed assurance. Listen to these lines. Perfect submission. All is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Now she can't see. Watching and waiting. She can't see. Looking above. Filled with his goodness. Lost in his love. Perfect submission. Perfect delight. Visions. She can't see. A refuge. Now burst on my sight. She can't see. Angels of mercy. Whispers of love. This is my story. You know, she saw not with these optic assistants. She saw with the vision of the hearts. Oh, brothers and sisters, you may be deprived of a whole lot of things, but make sure that you can see the Lord, that you can see what he's doing, and you can see where he is going. This is a text that none of us will ever be able to explain. And we'll never be able to explain away. It's a text that's not shallow, but very profound. So therefore, we need someone who has done that and been there. And the one who's done that and been there is our Lord Jesus Christ. He's done that. He's been there. He's been to death. He stayed in the grave. He's been resurrected from the grave. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And one of these days, when he calls us, there will be grace beyond the grave. One of these days, when God shall plow up this earth like a fresh plowed new ground, from the frozen banks of the north to the burning shores of the south. One of these days, when heaven shall roll up like a scroll, and melt with fervent heats. One of these days when we shall stand on the heavenly shore and wring the blue waters of tribulation from the hem of our garments. One of these days when God shall say, Gabriel, put your foot on the quaking earth and one foot on the troubled sea and declare the time that has been will be no more. One of these days when I shall stand before him and thank him because he brought me. Thank him because he taught me. Thank him because he kept me. And thank him because he never left me. We will praise him for grace beyond the grave. Grace. Grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace. Grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. God wants to encounter us today, even in our deadness, because there's grace even beyond the grave. He's able, if you live for him in life, to raise you from the dead, so you will live with him forever. I ask that you'd bow your head now. Father, thank you for what we could never understand. There is no situation that is hopeless to you. You are able to even work out your plans and your salvation when there seems to be 
no hope. Thank you for grace that is greater than sin. Grace that is greater than death. Grace that is greater than the benediction that you're able to work. If we trust you in life, you're able to work even after our death. I pray for every young person today who is on Satan's hit list. He's come to rob, steal, kill, and destroy, but you've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Not only protect them, but give them an unquenchable appetite for you. More about Jesus. Draw them closer to you. Help them to love you more than they love sin. Oh God, thank you so much for giving us life and giving us life more abundantly in Jesus' name. Pastor Carney.